controversial issues in an unbelieving world. Some of you may have noticed last month an American politician getting up and saying to the assembled media, there is no such thing as a fetal heartbeat. A fetal heartbeat at six weeks is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have a right to take control of a woman's body. Now, I'm thinking that probably many of us here today can testify that hearing our unborn child's heartbeat was an awesome and unforgettable reality. It's biological reality too. A baby's little heart begins beating at about 21 days gestation, and ultrasound enables us to hear that heartbeat at around six weeks. But because the issue that was being discussed was abortion, Stacey Adams dismissed biological reality. For her, the only relevant consideration was the power of the oppressor class, males, over the victim class, females. Now, that's just one tiny microcosm of a culture in which individual experience, and more particularly the individual experience of those deemed to be oppressed, is always, always the thing that will settle every argument. Personal experience outweighs scientific truth. Personal experience overrides objective reality, and definitely personal experience stands over scripture. And that's the culture we, you, are ministering in today. It's not just hostile to biblical truth, it's hostile to the very concepts of truth and reality. As Dr. Al Merler said recently, quote, we're now living in an age in which the secular world is unhinged from reality, unhinged from metaphysics, unhinged from truth, and unhinged from being, end quote. That's the age we are living in. God has put us here for such a time as this. Yes, we are daily confronted with a host of controversial issues, and yes, abortion is one of those issues. As a nation, we've just grim, marked the really grim milestone of 10 million infant lives sacrificed on the altar of adult freedom since the 1967 Abortion Act. Gender ideology is another of those issues. Irreversible damage has been done to countless children and young people because of the false claims of that ideology. And as representatives of the Christian Institute go up and down our four nations, this is the number one painful pastoral issue that many of us are hearing about. Right now, a bill to enable youngsters as young as 16 to change their legal sex is progressing speedily through the Scottish Parliament. Other controversial issues involve state intrusion into church and family life. One example of that is the pro proposed ban on so-called conversion therapy. And this could be used to veto preaching, prayer, pastoral care. It could even be used against parents teaching biblical truth to their own children. And many believers are facing daily challenges in the workplace, the school, the college if they don't endorse all of the demands of DIE, diversity, inclusivity, equity. Among other things, that often enshrines the most extreme LGBTQI++ demands and often the most extreme forms of the claims of critical race theory. So John McWhorter, for example, suggests that millions of innocent people are terrified of ending up on the wrong side of a zealous secular inquisition if they say the wrong thing about any group. Douglas Murray, who himself identifies as gay, says something similar. He laments the way that so many people are constantly scared of setting off hidden tripwires, causing offense, and sometimes losing their jobs as a consequence. And another non-Christian, Helen Pluckrose, has actually set up an organization, Counterweight, to support people in those situations. And every day at the Christian Institute, we offer confidential help and advice to Christians who find themselves in trouble for refusing to compromise their conscience, whether that be in areas of protection of life 
or freedom of religion. Now, I could spend the whole of this seminar going through issue after issue after issue. It is important to address them. We have a duty as citizens, don't we, to love our neighbour and work for policies that will benefit them. But I do believe that we are better able to understand all of those individual issues once we have understood the worldview that lies behind them. The current prevailing worldview is based on a series of lies, and those lies bear bitter fruit. So my aim in this seminar is simple. Number one, I want to encourage you to be confident in understanding and challenging those lies. And number two, I want to encourage you to be confident in upholding and promoting the truth. We and those in our churches need badly to have that confidence if we are going to engage effectively with those many individual controversial issues. And I would also suggest individual issues can shift from year to year, decade to get decade. We need a solid foundation to equip us to respond to whatever is thrown at us. But at the end of the seminar, I will point to some resources to help you engage with those individual issues. So the lies we are told. If you're an architect or a builder or an engineer, it becomes apparent fairly quickly whether the, the product that you have built or constructed works or not. When it comes to ideas, the effects are not, so always, not always so immediately obvious. Intellectuals can do untold damage, but they're rarely, rarely held to account. And I'm going to quickly walk you through some of the key thinkers who've shaped our current culture, even though we may be unaware of it. They've, pro they've promoted a host of damaging lies. And I'm going to mention five of those lies. Number one, lie number one, there's no creator God, so there won't be a judgment. 1841, German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity. And his basic argument was very simple. God is simply a human projection. We made him rather than the other way around because we needed him. The idea of God serves a little bit like a, a divine comfort blanket to help us and warm us through the hardships of life. 18 years after the publication of that book, Darwin published On the Origin of Species. And the foundation of modern secular humanism, that life can be explained without any reference to God, is very much based on the work of Darwin. The theory of evolution, of course, sees humans as products of chance in an impersonal universe. As Jacob Bronowski famously said in that old BBC series, The Ascent of Man, Man is a part of nature in the same sense as a stone is or a cactus or a camel. And of course, if there's no God, we don't have to answer to him. There, there won't be a judgment. If there's no transcendent being out there to tell us what to do, there's no absolute morality and we can all make our own rules. So Karl Marx, like Feuerbach, insisted that religion is just an illusion and he, he hated the idea of God. He viewed life in purely material terms and believe that religion is just there to serve the vested interests of the powerful and keep them in place. The idea of God serves to warm and cheer us through our pitiful lives, and it traps poor people in passivity, waiting for better things in an illusory next world. It's a false consciousness that must be eliminated. And then Friedrich Nietzsche saw clearly that the death of God meant that the foundation of meaning, truth, and value that people had taken for granted right from classical and biblical times up to the 19th century would absolutely inevitably collapse. Belief in God had been the foundation for belief in objective truth and objective morality. Without God, there'd be no foundation there at all for either absolute truth or absolute morality. And Nietzsche was absolutely right. Once we've closed those windows... Once we've dismissed the idea of a transcendent God out there, we're just left with the billions of people on this earth. Each of us has our own perspective. My truth, your truth. Who's to judge between us? There's no one out there to say what's right. Lie number two, no absolute morality. Moral codes are dangerous. Now, Marx and Nietzsche hated Christian morality, but the father of the sexual revolution was arguably Wilhelm Reich, 
an Austrian psychoanalyst and doctor, author of a book called The Sexual Revolution, published in 1936. Reich believed that sexual suppression in childhood is the cause of frustration, misery, and violence. He abused young patients sexually in the name of research, and he viewed himself in messianic terms, thinking that the gospel of sexual liberation would result in happiness for everyone. Now, if he was the father of the sexual revolution, you could argue that Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, was the mother of the sexual revolution. Her philosophy can be summed up as follows. If you ask the question, what is the reason for all human misery and suffering? The answer? Christian morality. And then if you were to ask, well, what will solve all human misery and suffering? The answer? Sexual liberation. Sanger and other advocates of free love were distressed that children were still being indoctrinated into that ridiculous idea that you have to keep sex from, for marriage. They had to be liberated from that. The old norms of faith for one man, one woman marriage had to be overthrown. Now, by the end of the 20th century, the thinking of those people and many, many others like them has transformed our understanding of why we're even here on this earth. Because for many people now, you would say, well, why are we here on this earth? And they might really think, in all sincerity, to live sexually fulfilled lives. And who defines that sexual fulfillment? Well, we do. Moral codes are dangerous. They restrict us. And so are socially constructed institutions like the family. They restrict us too. And there's no creator God. So as we look at society around us, we don't think of government or family or any other institutions as divinely ordained or even natural. They're social constructs. We constructed them. We can deconstruct them. Moral norms aren't divinely laid down either. They're oppressive constructs. And in this context, the whole concept of what people call orientation, in inverted commas, was the product of a worldview that believes that our desires must be respected and expressed. And that immediately frames God's moral law as unacceptable oppression. Radical feminists claim that the so-called natural family, man-woman marriage, fatherhood, motherhood, was just constructed by men in order to keep men, the patriarchy, in power. And they argued that over the millennia, sadly, unfortunately, women had been doomed by biology to bear and rear children, but now scientific advance offers us freedom from that oppression. Biological tyranny can be broken by technology, the pill, abortion, artificial reproductive technologies. Shulamith Farstone famously decided in 1970, with all the wisdom of her 25 years of age, that pregnancy is barbaric. Women should be freed from the burden of having babies and having their children depend on them. Many women might testify that having a baby was the most significant event in their lives, but Farstone believed, oh no, we would be happier if our babies were gestated in a cow or a machine and then dumped into state nurseries. In the dialectic of sex, Farstone demanded that children should be liberated from, and I'm quoting her here, quote, children should be liberated from the psychologically destructive genetic parenthood of one or two arbitrary adults. They should be cared for by society at large. The incest taboo must be broken down. Children must enjoy as much genital sex as they are capable of. Adults and children then will be free to enjoy polymorphous sexuality and all sexual taboos will disappear and we will all live happily ever after. That was 1970. Today there are international protocols calling for individual rights with regard to sexual fulfillment, reproductive liberty, personal gender identity to be protected in every nation, and many children in many nations are taught via comprehensive sex education that they have sexual rights too, and they must be respected. 
and they have the right for their personal gender identity to be acknowledged, and if their parents do not accept that, in some states, the state can rescue children from that oppression. Lie three, flowing on from all of this, I construct my own identity and I make my own rules. To repeat, if there's no transcendent God out there to tell me who or what I am, I decide who or what I am. I create my own identity. Famously, Jean-Paul Sartre declared, if there's a God, I can't be free. But I am free. Therefore, there is no God. Sartre insisted we don't have to conform to the rules and expectations of parents or church or society around us. We define our own existence. The one rule is no forbidding is allowed. Authenticity defined by me is all important. Some decades ago when I trained as a teacher, we were told that self-actualization was the goal for every child. And that thinking fuels the idea that life is all about me. Youngsters now are told, look within, make your own meaning, construct your own identity, determine your own morality, and most perniciously of all, trust your own feelings. Parents and teachers must allow children to discover their own values via values clarification. Moral authority is no longer based on anything objective like the Ten Commandments. Oh no, instead, what feels right for you? And that's the air that we all breathe. Lie number four, there's no ultimate truth. Brackets, truth claims are power grabs. French philosopher Michel Foucault claimed that knowledge itself is a cultural construct just there to keep the powerful people in power. He and other leaders of the deconstructivist movement wanted to live as they pleased and transgressiveness was celebrated. Christian morality was seen as dangerously repressive and that's all fed into the thinking that means that students today are often told it's wrong and dangerous to talk in terms of truth claims. And they're often told words have no universal meaning anyway. They mean different things to different people. The idea that truth claims are a mask for power grabs was foundational to the thinking of a number of radical thinkers associated with a Marxist study center in Germany that became known as the Frankfurt School. And these thinkers distinguished between traditional theories on the one hand, traditional academic disciplines like history, philosophy, biology, and critical theory on the other. Critical theory is not, not, not about understanding the world as it is, and it's not about finding truth, it's about changing the world to be as it should be. So traditional theories are about looking for truth, critical theory is about getting social justice, aka equal outcomes, the end of hierarchies, and equity. Now, there's a problem with that agenda, and slight problem with that is that we are all different. And exactly equal outcomes can only be achieved if you disrespect individual liberty. And in societies that have been influenced and impacted by the biblical worldview, inequalities have been mitigated by the Christian virtues of generosity, compassion, social responsibility, injustices have been addressed by a variety of reform movements, They've been reduced by the extension of equal opportunities. They've been challenged by education, free speech, and a free, a free press. But radical activists of the 20th century viewed all such reform efforts as hopelessly ineffectual, just papering over the cracks of an utterly corrupt civilization. It had to be smashed down, not reformed. People need to understand that they are, we are, we are all exploited by powerful forces over which we have no control. We must be enlightened to realize that the system is rotten. And today, attacks on the social order are once again being fueled 
by demands for equality of outcomes or equity. And some activists are calling for the downfall of the very structures that actually create and produce freedom and prosperity. Smash the patriarchy, family. Smash the police, law and order. Smash down the statues, our history, collective memory. Binary is bad, smash heteronormativity, nature and science. Smash capitalism, aka private property, wealth creation. So don't reform, break down. Now, how does this impact everyday life? We're not all out there smashing statues, but how does it impact us? Well, critical theory and all the associated critical theories, plural, like critical legal theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory, these have actually taught us as a culture to be cynical about everything. Because now, all of us are conditioned to see oppression everywhere. Hence the title of an important book by... Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay published in 2020 called Cynical Theories. And they explain that cynical theories, critical theory, enlightens us all to see the worst intents in, pop, in the social interactions around us. We're trained with laser beam accuracy to spot the homophobia, the transphobia, the racism, the ableism, or whatever ism you want to see in every possible situation. We are super, super sensitive now. And this breaks down trust. So if you're a woman and a man pays you any sort of compliment or offers any form of help, help with a heavy case, you are trained to assume that that is not a friendly suggestion. Oh no, oh no. That is an expression of toxic masculinity. It is a power play. If someone mentions a mum and a dad, that's sinister too. That's heteronormative oppression of trans people. But the result of all of this cynicism, sadly, is division and mistrust because society can't last very long once we all fragment into competing mutually distrustful groups with no common notion of truth. And in particular, this hits us as Christians. We have to understand that in our therapeutic culture, if someone thinks that their self-claimed orientation or self-claimed identity has not been respected or affirmed, it feels like actual violence. Words are seen as worse than physical harm because they threaten your identity. They can actually kill you. So police might drop everything to rush to the scene of a non-crime a non hate incident. Why? Well, a tweet can kill someone's sense of self. And some see that as real violence. A property crime, on the other hand, I mean, that could be regarded as rightful reparations. I mean, how did that person lay their hands on such a fancy car anyway? I mean, it's about time for some redistribution of resources. Lie number five, Christianity is toxic. Author Douglas Murray describes the corrosive impact of the denial of truth in his latest book, The War on the West, published in 2022. And Murray argues that many school and college teachers aim to inculcate a hatred for our culture, and in particular, note this, hatred for the Christian worldview on which that culture was founded. And he believes that as a culture, as a result, we are committing collective suicide. And where this hits us, as parents, youth leaders, pastors, Many young people now are absolutely programmed to believe that Christianity itself, by definition, is oppressive. Biblical teaching that God created male and female, hate speech. God's design for the family, the patriarchy. God's good design for sexual purity, dangerous and unnatural. To encourage children and young people to exercise sexual self-restraint, that's abusive and wrong because they have sexual rights too. To kill unborn children, that's a human right. To try and stop someone killing their unborn child, that's evil. The creation mandate to responsibly develop the earth for the blessing of humankind, that's decried as evil capitalism and the result, the, the, the cause of all environmental damage. The biblical truth that we are one race, 
descended from the same first parents, that all human beings are made equally in the image of God, has been replaced by suspicion as we increasingly focus on different group identities. God has ordained rulers to restrain evil and promote good, but many now truly believe that all authority is oppressive. After Babel, God ordained nations, for why? To protect humankind from global tyranny. But now, many regard national borders as discriminatory. The Bible teaches us to respect the elderly. But today, frail and elderly people are increasingly pitied and patronized, and in some so-called progressive countries, they are increasingly nudged towards assisted dying. So young people are schooled by the media, peers, even the education system, to believe that parents, youth leaders, pastors, who don't go along with so-called progressive notions are on the wrong side of history. And they're schooled to believe that whatever desires they have are good for us. Our desires express our true self. They must be respected. They're schooled to believe that any words of disagreement are hateful, and if you call people to repent, that can be heard as spiritual abuse. And as church leaders, we have to understand that in the minds of many people now, the mere mention of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, many regard that just as a ploy, a mask to cover for abuse. And so we have to understand that many around us are programmed to tune out and ignore and be suspicious of the very life-giving message that alone can deliver them from the preoccupation from self with self that is ultimately so self-destructive. But the question now is how have those ideas worked out in real life? Badly. Rotten theories are always, always, always mugged by reality. Let's look back just briefly at the lives of some of those who promoted those ideas. I'm going to mention four, but in my book, The Lies We Are Told, The Truth We Hold, I give a whole uh, gallery of them. Margaret Sanger. She demanded sexual freedom. She promoted the new pseudoscience of eugenics as well. In 1925, she wrote, shockingly, that it was ridiculous to engage in philanthropy and welfare because such stuff, quote, serves only to maintain an increasing race of morons which threatens the very foundation of civilization itself. In other words, don't bother to help poor people, just let them die. She was enthusiastic about the euthanasia, sterilization, abortion, and infanticide programs of Hitler's Reich. She devoted herself to the abolition of Christian morality, but her personal life was in a complete mess. Failed marriages, neglected children, numerous affairs, attempts to cover up her complicity with Hitler's regime. And sadly, and this is so sad, so sad, desperate efforts to find meaning through occult activities. The other pioneer of sexual liberation, Wilhelm Reich, well, his life was a mess as well. He married three times, divorced three times. He spent years making bogus machines supposedly collecting sexual energy. He constructed so-called cloud buster machines ridiculously purporting to harness energy to control the weather, uh, but he was convicted of fraud and died in an American prison in 1957. What about Michel Foucault? He demanded liberation from moral norms, and he lived that out himself. When he lived in North Africa, he engaged in systemic sexual abuse of boys aged between 8 and 10. He exploited others using his privilege and power, even as he castigated others for doing the same. Foucault had always famously condemned institutions such as hospitals as mere masks of bourgeois power where doctors keep control of other people. But when he was dying of AIDS, he was cared for with care, compassion in La Salpetrieta, a hospital he had formerly castigated. And what about Shulamith Farstone? Her idea was absolute individual freedom from any ties that bind, but the latter part of her life was a miserable outworking of that ideology. In 2012, after years of increasing mental illness, 
Shulamith died alone in her New York apartment, and firefighters eventually broke in only to discover her badly decomposed body. Bad theories are in time mugged by reality. False ideas bear bitter fruit. And we need to note also that they have a catastrophic impact on whole societies. Just consider for a moment that Darwinian idea that all of life is on a continuum. If you and I are seriously just on a continuum and of the same level as a stone, a cactus, or a camel, what then is special about human life? And the answer is precisely nothing. When a society rejects the idea that human life is created by God in his image, the value of a life is increasingly assessed by stuff like criteria, uh, usefulness, awareness, enjoyment. Francis Schaeffer warned that if man is not made in the image of God, nothing stands in the way of inhumanity. And so across the globe today, every year, 73 million unborn human lives are snuffed out and that inhumanity causes profound and lasting damage to their mothers as well. Just read some of the harrowing testimonies on UnChoice, a website where post-abortion women, often very young, tell their own stories. Or what about the rejection of God and an universal moral law? Take Karl Marx. How did he define good and evil? Well, for him, good and evil were defined only in terms of service or harm to the revolution. People were viewed as mere human material. One historian reckons the worldwide death toll of Marxist regimes during the 20th century was around 148 million. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously experienced himself the outworking of Marxist ideology as he endured eight years in a Soviet labor camp. And reflecting on that evil ideology, he came out simply with four words. Men have forgotten God. Thirdly, consider Jean-Paul Sartre's insistence, there is no forbidding. Now, many students from former French colonies went to Paris and they imbibed that existential philosophy. Everyone is free. We define our own existence. We define our own meaning. We make our own rules. And back in their own countries, they put that into effect with terrible consequences. And one of them was a young Cambodian student, later known as Pol Pot. He had taken on board the narrative, the bourgeois are just filth and they should be eliminated. There is no God, there are no rules, it's forbidden to forbid. And so between 1975 and 1977, two million people, a quarter of the population of Cambodia, perished, all in the name of social justice. Mao congratulated Pol Pot, you have scored a splendid victory. A single blow and no more classes, no more class system. Fourthly, what about the ideas of those who called for sexual liberation? Well, their ideas have unleashed a tsunami of exploitation. La Familia Grande, published um, in French in 2021 and in English this year, is by an author called Camille Kushner. It's now an international bestseller. It describes the incest and abuse which pervaded the top echelons of French intellectual society in the permissive 70s, 60s, and 70s. As a little girl, Camille asked her mother why her stepdad, who was one of the glitterati of French intellectual society, seduced women who came to their house. And her mother replied, I know all that, and it's all as it should be. That's our freedom. And Camille adored her stepdad. He taught the little girl that allowed and forbidden were purely personal, personal decisions. Nobody could tell you what to do. But now, decades later, she has uncovered the story of how her stepdad sexually abused her twin brother over the years while persuading him that there was nothing wrong with that at all. And today, on the big picture, we see how sexual liberation has simply fed into an explosion of the global pornography industry which sustains a global web of people trafficking, results in hideous addiction, destroys intimate relationships, destroys stable family life. And many young people now are told, sex is just about personal pleasure. It's just a recreational activity. Sex has been depersonalized, dehumanized, and disenchanted. And many 
end up feeling betrayed, abused, and utterly worthless. I find it just extraordinary that at a time when we are so determined to protect the ecology of the natural world, we all too often overlook the destruction of the ecology, the natural ecology of family life. And today there's a historically unprecedented global epidemic of fatherlessness. We just don't know how this is going to spin out in the coming decades. Freedom without boundaries ends up in dystopia, not utopia. But by contrast, when we look at the lives of those people through the centuries and across the globe who have lived for Christ, we see that they have sought to obey the biblical injunctions to love and care for not only friends and family, but neighbors, strangers, and even enemies. And this was and is good, utterly revolutionary. Good ideas bear good fruit. Now, of course, injustices have sometimes been perpetrated wrongly in the name of Christ. We have to distinguish real living Christianity from false or institutional Christianity. And of course, we believe in the wonderful, beautiful truth of God's common grace, which means that we absolutely do not have a monopoly of virtue and compassion. But the big picture is that through history across the globe, followers of Christ have and are seeking to challenge injustice, serve the needy, and do good, often at immense personal cost. And this has had a beneficial and widespread impact on all areas of human life. Why have Christians served self-sacrificially? Because we believe that all human beings are made in the image of God. And because we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. God-like love is self-giving love. And I find it extraordinary that in recent years, there have been influential non-Christian commentators such as Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, the late Rodney Stark, who have argued that the ideals that we hold dear, justice, compassion, empathy, freedom, these are all based on the biblical worldview. I find it also extraordinary that there are some non-Christian writers such as James Lindsay, the co-author of that book I mentioned, Cynical Theories, who wonders why so many Christian leaders play the role of useful idiots in terms of parroting out the opponent's claims that Christianity has always been oppressive and abusive over the years. That was one of the reasons why I wrote How Christianity Transformed the World, just to present a positive response to the overly negative picture we often hear. From the early church right through the centuries to the present day, the sacrificial service of Christ's followers has had a widespread impact on freedom, religious liberty, justice, the protection of human life, the dignity of women, philanthropy, educational provision, the work ethic, and so much more. So much more. So as Christians, we do, believe, we, we do care about poverty and discrimination and injustice and oppression. And we do recognize that in a fallen world, a sinful world, the powerful and strong do often oppress the weak. And they do often take hold of social structures in order to do that. Just read Ecclesiastes. Just read the prophets. God holds those rulers to account. They will have to answer to him in the end. But through history, across the world, you do have those Christians who have been challenging abuse, working for reform. A massive research project of many years duration by Robert D. Woodbury showed that the greater the impact of Christian biblical mission on any nation, the more likely that government was to respect human rights, the rule of law, and the less prone they were to tyranny. It's a historical fact that wherever Christianity has had the greatest impact, individual freedom and rights are more prevalent. And so, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that although the consensus today that's believed by so many young people in particular is that Christianity is toxic and oppressive, we should not be ashamed. We should take hold of the truth, and we need to be confident ourselves that the biblical worldview provides, number one, the only solid foundation for human dignity, because we've been created in the image of God, the only solid foundation for real freedom, because no government has the power to tell you or me what to believe, because at the last day we all answer to God, 
It provides the only solid foundation for morality because a transcendent God out there has given us all a conscience, an awareness of his eternal, unchanging, universal, perpetual moral law. And it provides the only sure way to human flourishing. Family works, civil authorities, of course they're corrupted by sin, but they're there ultimately as a provision for our good. So with that in mind, how should we engage in a hostile culture? Number one, be confident in the truth. Equip your church members to be absolute confident fundamentally in the authority of scripture. God speaks and God never lies, as we were hearing so powerfully from Paul last night. It's God's living word without mistakes. But we're also to be confident in general revelation, the world God has made. It never contradicts his special revelation. That's why truth always bears fruit, good fruit in real life. The book of Proverbs is a practical manual bearing witness to that. So general revelation and special revelation, be confident in the truth and the glory of both. Number two, expose the lies as unworkable and damaging. And here I have to remind you, we are in a cosmic battle. We're in principalities and powers. The devil is the father of lies, and he wants to destroy God's image bearers. So we have to be determined in our opposition to the father of lies and our opposition to the lies that he promotes. But like Christ, we always have compassion on those who have believed the lies and been damaged by the lies. We love them. We pray for them. We do good to them. When we expose the lies, we must do so with gentleness and respect. There's absolutely no point ever winning an argument if we lose the person in the way that we conduct the argument. But as we expose the lies as unworkable and undamaging, can we please encourage those in our churches not to tell lies? The culture around us is pushing, 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 pushing for us to go along and affirm stuff that we know in our hearts is frankly untrue. At the very least, we must not tell lies. Thirdly, live out the love of Christ. As we face increased efforts to shut down the life-giving biblical message, we know that there are increasing numbers of people out there who not only have never been exposed to that life-giving biblical message, but they have been poisoned against it. And that's bearing horrible results in their lives. And we need to realize that with the abolition of all of those ties that bind, the smashing down of the family and commitment, many are left alienated and lonely. And it honors God, and it's truly beautiful, when our churches are, by contrast, extending love, care, compassion, and concern. Christ's body on earth, offering love, joy, peace, modeling contentment, modeling generosity, modeling gentleness, modeling peace. It's been so lovely, this conference, to hear grassroots accounts just in individual conversations of the good that local churches are doing in their communities. And that is truly beautiful. And that is the best way to engage with love and mercy and compassion. Paul instructed Titus to teach the believers to live such good lives among the pagan that God would be commended. And that's surely what we are to do too. It had a mighty impact in the first three centuries of the Christian church, and it still does so today. Number four, teach biblical ethics and don't dodge the controversial issues. It's totally tragic to recall that in 1967, when the Abortion Act was passed at Westminster, pretty well, largely, almost universally, evangelicals stayed absolutely silent. They didn't want to put people off the gospel. They didn't want to hurt the feelings of women who'd had abortions. But over the decades, I've heard the sad stories of women who've said to me, why did nobody ever tell me that killing my baby was wrong? There was just this silence in the church. Nobody talked about it. So I did, and now I feel awful. Their lives have been blighted by endless regret. Not speaking the truth in the guise of compassion is false compassion. We see that now with so many stories of detransitioners, people who have been persuaded to seek to change their gender and have now, having undergone damaging treatments, changed their minds. And they look back and say, why did everyone affirm me when I was telling them to affirm me? I was too young to know what I was doing. It was a false compassion to go along with their demands. 
Many today think that it's loving to affirm people in whatever they say about themselves, but Romans 1.32 has harsh condemnation of those who affirm the evil. And the context there is actually a whole catalogue of pretty well everything, all aspects of the moral law. Fifthly, teach about God's moral law, but in the light not only of special revelation, scripture, but in the light of general revelation, creation. Our church members should be confident that God's unchanging moral law was framed for the good of all humankind. It meshes with the way the world has been created. And they need to be clear that our identity isn't based on our own feelings and desires. It's God's good creation of us. That's actually very liberating. And I think that the most wonderful thing is when we can always be ready to give up-to-date, relevant examples of how bad worldviews bear bad fruit, Good example of that, just recently published a book on abortion by Ryan Anderson and Alexander de Sanctus. Never mentions the Bible once, as far as I can recall. Not one single Bible text in the whole book. But it's a massively powerful book documenting the damage that abortion does, particularly to women. So using the general revelation aspect of nature and evidence is a, is, 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 is a really important thing to do. And that meshes into the next point, teach biblical worldview. Just think of the dire hopelessness of the current worldview. Be ready to contrast no ultimate purpose, no meaning, no significance, no hope after death with the beauties and glory of the gospel. Biblical worldview. And the confusion about reality that is abounding now, we have the simple truth that God created the world and it is real. As G.K. Chesterton memorably put it, eggs are eggs. We believe in reality. And that's a solid, solid worldview. And I think that particularly young people do get distressed and confused with the unreality of what so much is on offer now. Seventhly, provide your congregation with up-to-date and accurate resources about what is going on now and those current issues. At the Christian Institute, we seek to simply serve you by providing up-to-date and accurate resources on unfolding issues as they unfold. And most of you will have a little selection of some of those resources to take home with you and have a look at. If you want to keep up-to-date about issues like the proposed conversion therapy ban, pressure to introduce assisted suicide, which is really going fast in Scotland, promotion of gender ideology in schools, and so forth, you can sign up for regular updates on that. We have an education department. One of the frontline areas of of controversy at the moment is what's going on in schools. Um, And behind the scenes, we're offering free confidential advice to parents, teachers, sometimes students, um, on a regular basis. So do be in touch if you need help. And we have lots of briefings on the different situations in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, England. Gareth Edwards, our Welsh officer, is sitting right at the front corner here so he can answer questions if you specifically want to connect with him over the app about Wales. Um, And in whatever nation you are, whichever nation, we're always happy to come to your church and give up-to-date information if we can help you in that way and we make no charge. Um, We have a resource called Living Christianity for adults and students, now an animated one for for, for youngsters, teens, which is fabulous, about how to put all of this into practice. But most important of all, finally, be confident in God's good purpose for for the world. Many people now are just locked in a sort of apocalyptic despair. They're living without hope and without God. Can we just get how horrible that is and how tragic? By contrast, we have a certain hope. We have a certain hope of God's good purposes in this life and for eternity. So as we engage in these current controversial issues, we must not be afraid, we must not be ashamed, we must not be wanting just to put our heads down and keep out of trouble. Rather, we should be going out confident in God's good purposes and confident that Christ is King. Now, I've got time for questions, if anyone would like to engage in questions. Um, there are going to be two roving mics, Jenny and Janice. So hands up if any questions. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sharon, very much for all that, um, uh, what you said this, this morning. Um, you mentioned about not affirming people um, in wrong ideas about themselves. Um, how do you respond to someone, therefore, who maybe is transgender and presents to you as uh, a, a gender opposite from when they were born, uh, how do you cope with that? Because um, obviously what you're saying there, you, you would actually not want to affirm that. 
Yeah, thanks, thanks very much for that question. So obviously on a case-by-case -case basis, because sometimes, as you know well, um, sometimes it's not even apparent that somebody has transitioned. But what we are told to do in the Bible is not to tell lies. So if it's the case for a young person who's saying, I want to transition to X and Y and Z, going along with those demands is not a compassionate thing to do. And I think that the most helpful thing to do is I provide a whole um, catalogue of testimonies to that effect in my book, Gender Ideology. I think of Sarah, a 15-year-old in the Midwest of, of, of America, who demanded to be affirmed as a boy um, for a couple of years and posted continually about her mother on social media, about how abusive her mother was for dead naming her and all the rest of it. And mum held out and wouldn't, wouldn't affirm her. Um, and in the end, aged about 19, 20, Sarah looked back and said, I'm so glad my mum didn't go along with it. So it, it, it's a challenge. I think that in many situations, people can find that they can be perfectly gracious and courteous to somebody, say, in, a, in a, just a social interaction or a work situation, without actually saying things that would give them the impression that they were cheering on that assumed identity. But it's always a wisdom call. But I think that the, the truth to hold in mind is we as human beings, are male or female, it is impossible to change sex. It's interesting that this has become more and more uh, in sharper focus with the gender-critical feminists who are more than happy to go out there and say that very loudly and very publicly, whereas to our shame, many Christians over the past 15 years or so have been quite hesitant. Um, but those gender-critical feminists, uh, they're out and proud. They're, they're not hesitant at all. It is impossible to change sex. Because once we have that in our mind, then we can have infinite... Uh, compassion on somebody who is, if they're genuinely conflicted within themselves, but we're absolutely not going to cheer on what we would regard to be a disastrous and damaging um, change of identity that could down the road, very likely down the road, simply result in further trauma. Quickly, in a school situation, therefore, a teacher might actually be disciplined uh, yes. following that advice yes. you've given. Yes, some teachers there. are actually disciplined. Um, now, again, I'm not going to impinge on the um, individual situations. Uh, so we have a Christian uh, education department at the Institute where our head of education, education officer, are behind the scenes, often resolving situations peacefully. The good news is that there is protection of conscience for teachers. And we've had many informal conversations with people, helping them navigate and negotiate whereby they have not had to go against their conscience and affirm something. Um, but that's more an individual conversation about individual cases. But if push comes to shove, there are teachers who are willing to face the consequences rather than go against their conscience. And as we've been reminded through this conscience, com conscience conference even, we are part of a grand, a truly grand tradition of nonconformity and dissent where people have refused to compromise their conscience and we must take courage and take heart from the wonderful example of our forebears in that regard. We're not ashamed of the gospel, we're not ashamed of Christ, and we're willing to take the consequences. Just yesterday, I was reminding myself that after the Great Ejection in 1662, thousands of dissenters ended up in the following decades in prison. 8,000 of them died because of the filthy, horrible prison conditions. And that's the kind of cost that in the past um, dissenters were willing to pay. Another question. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> thank you, Sharon. Ob Sorry, I'm trying. I'm I can't see anything because of the spotlight. Hello, oh, I'm over here. I'm next to Lee. Uh, obviously, we're not the only critical voice that seeks to contend with those five lies. I've I've now seen several secular young men exploring church and faith because they see the kind of cultural and sexual chaos out there, and they don't like it. They've been pointed to church, to scripture, kind of to a solid morality by YouTube philosophers, such as uh, Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, et al. Um, just wondering your opinion. These intellectuals, they often, they act like pre-evangelism, kind of, for these young men and women. Um, are others seeing this? Uh, what are the opportunities and challenges of interacting with these non-Christian cultural critics? Do I need to repeat that for recordings, uh, Jenny? Always. 
I'm not sure. I think we've got that. Okay. Really good question there. How do we respond to the phenomena of people like Jordan Peterson who are effectively acting as much more persuasive evangelists than many in the church? We should be grateful for them. Absolutely grateful. Um, many people are considering biblical truth and it's, I don't know how many of you have watched the interview that Jordan Peterson did with Vishal Mangalwadi. Um, and he just gave Vishal Mangalwadi complete freedom and space to make the argument as Mangalwadi does so brilliantly for the impact of the biblical worldview on the whole world. Um, so, so we can be grateful. I mean, we, we don't in, in any sense say or pretend that these people are Christians. They're not. They need, they need, they need the Lord. But if they're pointing people to the very reality that life is self-evidently not just a closed material universe, there is a transcendent reality, we can pray that that would have effect and then lead people on to the truth. The thing that's missing that I find in most of those discussions is a robust treatment of creation. It, it, you cannot have a proper biblical worldview without a proper doctrine of creation and a rejection of evolution. Um, and that's the sort of missing link in many of them. But, but, but as a pre-evangelism, I think it's a great way of putting it and then point people on to, um, great thinkers like Stuart Burgess or whoever who can fill in the, fill in the, fill in the bit about the need to, to understand that God is the creator and the whole proper worldview flows from that. Another question? Yeah. As a grandparent, um, I'm just Sorry, one. Spotlight. Yeah. Okay. Got you. I'm a, as a grandparent and, and hearing what's going on in schools, how, as a, just practically, should we, as evangelicals, be removing our children from sex education classes and our grandchildren? I know my son and his wife are conflicted about this. Or should we be more um, allowing them to go and doing all the legwork, the backup at home? If you are to remove children from such lessons, what, what are the ramifications for the children and what are the ramifications, you know, as a family? I just wondered if you had any... Experience That's that. a huge topic because sex ed is determined by schools and governors. So the absolute responsibility for all parents, not just Christian parents, I would suggest is that they must insist on seeing the materials that children are using. And at the Christian Institute, we keep banks and libraries of all of these various resources. And some of the ones I've seen, I wouldn't let... I mean, you just wouldn't want to let adults anywhere near them, let alone children. Um, so find out what's going on absolutely find out what's going on. And we are finding that when parents find out what's going on and actually um, share with other parents what's going on, they can make a real difference because schools will then sometimes respond to that and modify or withdraw those materials. Um, but, the, but it's complicated because there are different situations in the four nations, differences between areas. And I would simply say, A, find out what's going on. B, get in touch with our education de department. Um, or in the different nations, the different officers, to say, how can we best and constructively be involved here? And again, some parents will come to the responsible decision that they will make decisions about the whole schooling thing. Again, case by case. But it is, it is utterly criminally negligent not to know precisely what materials the children are being exposed to. Yes, uh, work in a poor community which is the number one most ethnically diverse place. Sorry, could you just raise your hand? Whoever's yes, speaking? I will do. Oh, You're thank right. you. Great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mo number one most ethnically diverse place in London. The material is good and um, has been an eye-opener to me. Most of the people I work amongst, and even members of my own family, would not hear it. And the reason would be because with regards to things like injustice, is there a problem? Before, before we look into um, the lies that speak into the problem, they wouldn't hear you unless you show empathy for the problem itself. Yeah. Yeah. What's your comment and sort of experience on that, Sharon? Okay, so basically I simply say that going around different places in the world, you know, I've literally been in, you know, Soweto and Middle East and Far East and all the rest, on the front lines in those situations, again, where do you find the love and the compassion and the reaching out the hand to actually make a difference sacrificially? It's very often the followers of Jesus. I think of a feminist book that was written 
well over 10 years ago. Um, it became very famous, an iconic book, something like Half the Sky. And it's about the oppression of, of women worldwide. And they, this was card-carrying liberal atheist feminists writing it, but they had the honesty to say, when you go to the most deprived situations on earth where there is most injustice and um, discrimination and suffering and etc., the people on the very front lines of that are the Bible-believing Christians because, frankly, they don't care if they die. And, and that, 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 that's putting it... That's putting it Bluntly, but the point is willing to give up their lives to help the other person. And, and you see that, for example, in China, where you get Chinese Christians willing to give up their lives, risk their lives to help refugees from North Korea. Because at the end of the day, we, we don't want to commit suicide and throw away our life, but we are not afraid to, to die in the cause of, of helping our fellow men. So yes, there is injustice. Yes, there is abuse. Yes, there is discrimination. Um, and of course, in every situation... We want to make sure that people know that we care and we love because that is what Jesus would want to do. Um, and that's why I said at the end, the prerequisite to arguing about truth is to living out Christianity. Um, and true Christianity is not just about right belief. It is also about right action and it is also about right experience. Those three together, like three legs to the stools. And, and you, you can never take one of them away because the whole thing falls down. I think that it's nearly 10 to, and I, I'm very aware that we have been strongly exhorted to be at our lunch tables by one o'clock. So maybe one last question. No more questions. That is absolutely wonderful. Okay, right, I'll pass back to Ray. Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. You can access more resources for church leaders, including articles, videos and podcast episodes on our website, fieec.org.uk.